I'm going to let the uh, children be dismissed to go to junior church. I want you to turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 8, to a verse that is uh, exceedingly familiar to all of us, and I think exceptionally relevant uh, to the year that we find ourselves moving into, not only as a church family, but as a country, as individuals in, in, in every way. I am going to confess that I had... I thought I understood this verse, and I, I think I do. But it's one of those verses that when you read it and go through it and study it, um, the, the far-reaching ramifications of it, the theological ramifications of the statements made in this verse... Uh, tested me uh, in a very unique way as I went through it. Um, so my desire this morning is just to do the best job that I can in communicating the basic truths of verse 28 to you. And I plan to hang out in Romans 8 for probably three or four weeks to lay out a series of sermons called The God Who Works in All Things, The Good, The Bad, and The Indifferent. Uh, because we can say that, and it's easy to say God works in all things. Whether they're good, bad, or indifferent, he works in all of them. But to begin to understand the ramifications of that is something that I was challenged to a few weeks ago in a uh, Bible study discipleship uh, environment that I'm involved in on Tuesday mornings at 9 o'clock. I meet with Phil Satillo, who recently trusted Christ. And we are just doing some Bible. I gave him a Bible follow-up book. We're supposed to go through that on a weekly basis. It has six lessons. We've met ten times. How many lessons have we done, Phil? None, that's what I thought. <laughs> we haven't done any, because Phil keeps coming up with these verses that he's finding, and he's trying to express to me and ask questions about what, what he's learning and, and expressing the joy that he's finding in God. A few weeks ago, he came to me with Romans eight twenty eight, And he said, oh, he said, I found something I want to show you. It's in Romans 8, verse 28. You know, my, my flesh response is, I know that. <laughs> I know that verse. You just found that? <laughs> And then in my, in my heart, here's the feeling that came over me. The feeling, and he was, he was like beaming. He was happy, delighted that such a promise as all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are according, according to his purpose. Phil thought that was good news. He was excited by that promise. And, and the thought that ran through my mind, and I said this to him that morning, was this. I would love to be able to read that verse for the first time. I would love to read that promise like it was the first time. Because the reason Phil was excited was the truth of it wasn't common to him. It was far-reaching. It was a magnificent promise that enveloped all of his life. And he's had to share it. And I've been contemplating that verse that morning. He and I looked at that verse in its broader context, which is what I think we ought to do. We ought to take a verse like that and not eject it out of its context, but shove it back in its context and say, let the preceding and following passages of Scripture help me to understand the glory of this promise. And what I'm going to do this morning is pull it out of its context and express what it basically says. And then in the weeks to come, I want to shove it back in its context so that the truth that it proclaims will be magnified and amplified so the text or the font size will increase and the promise will become to us fresh and new. That is the desire of my heart as I go through this. Why this topic now? Uh, simply because it's the beginning of a new year. I 
like the new beginnings. I think most of us do. You get a fresh start, a clean slate, start out new patterns, plans, habits you want to bring into your life. But there's also much to be concerned about. This morning, I ask you this question. What is on your list of concerns that God wants to confront with the blazing truth of this passage of Scripture? The God who works in all things. What's on your list that God providentially, through Phil's excavating this verse and our discussing it and him putting it on my heart to bring to you as a church family, what's on your list that God wants to confront and alter and change in a way that will bring glory and honor to his name? Can I make some suggestions this morning? Perhaps it is an overwhelming concern about your financial picture, which in 2008 and 2009 was utterly devastated. I know for many of you here this morning, husbands and wives, there are work-related concerns. For some, will my vehicle make it another year? For some, relational issues, parenting issues, graduations, marital struggles in your own marriage or in the lives of those around you. Children that you have in harm's way. John Baker's son just redeployed back into the Middle East. Emotional struggles, medical and health concerns, aging parents that you're taking care of, turning 50. It's on my list. Children getting married, that's on my list. Uh, Terror attacks, your kids learning to drive when they're out on the road. Political concerns, church building issues as a church family. I could make a relatively long list of issues that can cause us to question the promise of Romans 8, verse 28. And this morning, what I'd like you to do is take your list and confront it with the blazing truth of this passage of Scripture. The God who works in all things. And who expresses himself through the hand of the Apostle Paul in a simple snapshot of Scripture that is dense and that is theologically deep and challenging. I had to keep studying and looking into the words. What is this saying? I pray this morning that the Holy Spirit will enable us to grasp what this means. We all have lists that have a lot of things that we cannot control. God speaks to those issues through the precious and exceedingly wonderful promises of this passage of Scripture. One of my key concerns this morning as we look at this is to capture the context of this passage of Scripture set in Romans 8. Let's read verse 28 down through verse 30. The Bible says, And we know that in all things God works... For the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those that he justified, he also glorified. Now, I think the obvious key phrase of verse 28 is the words, all things. I think the words, all things, capture the essence of verse 28 through the end of Romans chapter 8. I want you to, if you write in your Bible, take a pen and circle these words. In verse 28, circle the word, all things. Then get now to verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not freely with him give us all things. Circle that. Get down to verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. 
And then when you're studying the Bible, and what I did in my Bible, I drew lines between the all things so that I see that I'm dealing with a section of Scripture that is tied together by a very unique set of thoughts. The thoughts relate to everything in the life of believers. So God in His providence is watching out over all things. I think that is the clear emphasis of this passage of Scripture. Now here's a concern that I have. Does my response to all things... Okay, does my response to all things honor or dishonor God? Okay, does my response to all things in my life, good, bad, and indifferent, does my response honor or dishonor God? And I think the answer to that question depends upon whether or not I understand and grasp the full implications of this passage of Scripture, which contains perhaps one of the most well-known and wonderful promises of the New Testament. Verse 28 begins with this statement. It says, and we know. Okay, now, the word here that's used talks about a knowledge that is firmly grasped and then begins to have consequences that are manifest throughout the remainder of our life. So at some point, Paul's saying, we know these things. There's a body of truth that we understand. That body of truth, when apprehended and understood, will begin to affect and impact the rest of my life and every circumstance that I face. That's Paul's understanding here. We know with confidence and certainty that God is working in all things. Paul's speaking about a settled conviction that will have lasting practical consequences in our lives. If I freak out when things go wrong. If I hit the panic button when things don't go the way that I anticipated they would go, I am not living out and clinging to the truth of this passage of Scripture. So this morning, I want us to look at the things that we know that are assurances of the steadfast love of God for every believer. What are the things from this very simple verse that we know with assurance? Number one is this. It says... God works in all things for good. Because the first thought I want to bring to you is this this morning. God has chosen to take an active role in our lives. Okay, God is working in all things. He is at work. He is active. The King James Version, in, in, a, in, a, in a fascinating way, misses the wonderful ramifications of this passage of Scripture. Here's what the King James Version says. It says, all things work together for good. The New International Version captures the original meaning much more effectively when it says, God is working in all things and through all things. It's not everything's out there happening by chance and just, you know, everything just ultimately just works out for good. No, what it's saying is that God is working in all things for good. He has taken an active position in your experience. Let me give you this definition of works. God works in all things. Meaning, he is actively, ceaselessly, carefully, and powerfully, and energetically working in all things. The word in the original language is soon, which we get our word with from, and energeo, energy working with. God is working together everything. He is overriding, providentially controlling all circumstances that you and I face in our lives. 
What Paul's talking about here is not the fatalism that is pre- prevalent in the day that we live in. Uh, our world tends to think like this. Yeah, you know what? Ultimately, everything, everything finally works out. We had a waitress say this to us at the diner that we go to in Washington on Wednesday mornings. Just something had come up in her life. And she, as she walked away, she just flippantly said, and we were looking at this page, she just flippantly said, you know what? Well, everything works out. Okay? Meaning just, you know, ultimately everything is going to come together and everything will be just fine. This passage of Scripture gives to us a view of God that is fundamentally different than the, the line in the song that says the sun will come up tomorrow. You know what that is? That's a fatalistic optimism that assumes that all, it can't get any worse than this. And ultimately, it's going to get better. Okay, but it's fatalism. It's, things are just going to get better because they just get better. And this passage of Scripture holds up a completely different view that the Word of God calls providence. Providence is God's beneficial rule over all of the events of our lives. Providence involves the overruling and overriding of the events and choices and workings of men. God is not standing outside of the universe wondering what Sandy Wagner is going to do next so that he can determine his next step of action. He does not submit himself to your choices. Okay? His providence is his overruling and overriding. Let me give you a couple passages of Scripture that I think will help to understand this. Proverbs 21 and verse 1. It says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he what? He turns it wherever he will. Okay? He is active in your life and in the world in which you live. Romans 13.1 Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Pet peeve. I get really tired of Christians who consistently complain about governmental officials that they dislike as if God, by that individual's election, has been rendered incompetent and irrelevant in their lives. That sense of Christian panic that thinks that the president or the senator or the governor has ultimate authority is fundamentally unbiblical and should be rejected by us. God is bigger than any elected official. And so the response of Christians in all things should be, God is working in all things. And when it comes to the appointment of presidents and governors and mayors and councilmen, Paul says there are none that are there that God did not appoint for that purpose at this time. So relax. Okay? And stop complaining as if God is somehow off the throne temporarily. He's not. But a lot of Christians make it sound like he is. God is active in the affairs of our life and in our world. Number two that emerges here. It says God works for the good of those who love him. Here's the principle. God, and I think this emerges through the working, he actively and sovereignly is seeking the good of his children. Folks, folks, no matter what is happening in your life, no matter what circumstance you are facing, here's the promise. Okay, I didn't create this. I think the promise of this text is that God is committed to actively and sovereignly 
providentially seek the good of his children. Now let that sink in and think through your list. The list that you don't like. That God is actively and sovereignly and providentially overriding and overruling in all things because life is about his glory and not ours. Some misunderstand this text and it becomes a cliche. Yeah, but God works everything for good. So if you lost your job last week, that person seems to indicate that this text implies that you lost your job, yes, but God works everything for good, so next week you're going to get a job that pays more. Oh, yes, yes, your girlfriend dumped you, but next week, because God works everything for good, he's going to bring along a prettier model for you. Okay, and we, we, we tend to take this text and read it like, oh, everything works out to be better ultimately in this life. Not what this text is talking about. This text is focused on the ultimate issues, on the supreme issues of God's working that are not temporary benefits and pleasures. Now, it's not to say that God doesn't do that because he clearly does. But the promise of this passage of Scripture is that in all things, God is providentially and sovereignly producing good for his children. He's working through all the assorted circumstances of your life. There is a danger in a purely materialistic interpretation of this text about things. Good in this context means not things that are for our comfort, not things that are for our prosperity, not things that are for our health, but things that are ultimately beneficial. And in the context, they are defined in spiritual terms. Because the context goes on into 29 through 30 and describes what? The working of God in eternity past in relationship to the salvation of those who love him. So verses 29 and 30 help me to understand what the all things working for good encompasses. It encompasses eternity past. It encompasses my present circumstances. And it encompasses the future. God is not simply about solving your temporary problems. He's got the whole picture under control. Not just the world is in his hand. The entire created realm is in his hand. And he is working all of that together for the good of those who love him. His goal is our final salvation, our ultimate and eternal good. All of this is calculated. All of this working of a God is calculated for the ultimate good of his children. It does not mean, however, that we have to understand everything that happens in our life. Because let's be honest, we don't. Psalm 131, Doug Finkbinder spoke on this text a few months ago. I will not concern myself with things too wonderful for me. I will not concern myself with, as one politician said, with things that are above my pay grade. And let's be honest, many things in our lives as Christians are above our pay grade. Much of our suffering defies explanation. We don't understand it. Here's the promise we cling to. In this circumstance that I do not understand and that I would never have chosen and that is not bringing me happiness, God is still on the throne. And he is still working all things out to the glory and honor of his name. And the best way that I can glorify him in these circumstances is to praise him in the storm, as one songwriter has said. 
to understand that in this, he is in control and he is working it all out for an ultimate purpose that will finally bring a smile to the face of every one of his children. Next statement says this. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. I want to focus on the word or the phrase, all things. I sarcastically wrote in my notes, and you'll understand this, because you hear people quote Greek, and you think, wow, they must know a lot. I took six years of Greek, okay? You know what all things means? It means everything. It means everything. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand. And I'm not a Greek scholar, by the way. Forgot most of what I learned. Actually, I lost it. I need to find a Greek finder. Maybe that'll help me out. All things in context simply means everything. Okay, now, here's the part that's hard. Okay, because that statement, all things, is categoric. There is nothing in my life, no circumstance in my life that isn't covered by that statement. You know what that causes? That causes a conflict inside, doesn't it? Because you have faced circumstances in your life that you're dying to have an explanation for. And we have examples of people all through Scripture who face circumstances where they were dying to have an explanation. You know what Paul says? Here's the explanation. The God who created you and loved you through his son, Jesus Christ, is working everything together for your ultimate supreme good. End of discussion. He works all things together for good. You know what that requires? That means, I need, here's what it requires. I need to pray and say, God, I need more faith. I need greater trust. Increase my capacity in light of this opportunity. You've allowed circumstances to come into my life that defy explanation, that I don't have words to explain. I don't like it. I don't want it. I don't understand it. I didn't ask for it. Why? The response that God wants from us is, will you trust me? It's what every parent says to their child when they make the hard call. It takes courage to be a good parent, to say to your kid, I know you don't understand why I'm saying no, but I have to say no. Sometimes you can't even explain why because you've got inside information. And you say to them, you have to trust me because I have your good, your benefit, your blessing in mind. It's exactly what God is saying in this passage of Scripture. He causes all things to work together for good, whether they are good, bad, or in different circumstances. I would never choose, do not understand, and cannot enjoy. The thing that I want you to notice, though, in this text is this. It says that he is working in all things. And the idea here is that all things are instruments in the hand of a sovereign God, overruling and overriding through circumstances to work out ultimate good for his glory in the life of his children. Okay, he is not distant and outside. The, the picture here is not that things get messy and dicey and God finally moves in and, and he pulls it out and makes it work. He's not like Jack Bauer. Okay, he's not like MacGyver. Okay, remember the guy that ran into the incredibly complicated circumstance and could always figure out a way to get it to work out for good. Folks, God is better than that. And I know for a lot of you, Jack Bauer is like a hero. 
Okay, and MacGyver, when I was younger, yeah, I was younger at one time. He, he, he could work anything out, but here's the difference between MacGyver and Jack Bauer. They are always caught by surprise. Always. Here's an awesome truth. God has never once guessed. Not once. He's never gone ever. There is no circumstance in your life that you face, no pain in your experience that has caused God to go, I would have never thought that would happen. And now think about this. He is that, and for some of you, you're thinking, okay, but that makes me have questions. Because that implies that the pain in my life, God allowed or even more so caused. Because he is working in all things, which means all things are instruments in his hand that are accomplishing his purposes. Yes, that is true. Particularly in the death of his son. You want to get shocked? Go read Acts 2 and Acts 4 this afternoon. When you killed him, you did what the Father had formerly ordained. You fulfilled his plan. Folks, that's how utterly sovereign God is. You do not have a circumstance in your life that you have run into his presence to pray about and God said, I didn't know about that. It never happens. Your time in prayer is the plea of a son or a daughter to their heavenly father. Go back up just a few verses. We cry out in our hearts as sons, as daughters, Abba, Father. That's the context here. The ones who love God are his children. The ones who are his children have the internal witness of the spirit where God is saying, you are mine. And the spirit is prompting us in all things to say what? Abba, Father, in what things? Go back one verse before, verse, or two verses, verse 26. When we don't know how we should pray, why? Because the all things has gotten beyond our comprehension. What happens? The Spirit intercedes for us with what? Groanings that cannot be put into words. And he articulates before the Father your deep heart cry and pain. Because he loves you. And his spirit is internally testifying to the goodness of God in your life. If you know the story of Joseph, you know an incredible story, a twisted story of hatred, murderous hatred of 11 brothers towards the youngest brother who was the favorite son of the father. He sold into slavery and through a sovereign set of circumstances, a providential set of circumstances, God works it out so that Joseph sits second in command in the land of Egypt, having been sold as a slave into that country through the providential, sovereign, overriding, and overruling work of God. Joseph sits number two in command. His brothers who sold him into slavery go to Egypt during a famine because there they believe they will find food to sustain them. They come before their brother Joseph and find out that God has providentially overruled their sin, hatred, and murder and has raised their brother to a position of incredible power. Eventually, their father dies. Their lives are preserved. But when their father dies, they begin to think, Joseph will now exact revenge on our heads for our murderous hatred that destroyed his life. 
theoretically. Theoretically, they destroyed his life. But actually, they were the instrument of God. Listen to Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. It says, but Joseph said to them as they come and say, we're afraid that you're going to kill us. He says, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Meaning, I have not allowed this position, sovereignly given, gifted by God, to go to my head. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. And listen, the words are exact. You intended to harm me. God intended it for good. You planned to get rid of me and destroy my life. God planned to preserve your life through your sin and hatred. Now that will cause your mind to go into tailspins, okay? All we understand is this. Joseph's view of the overruling and overriding providential sovereignty of God was that his being in Egypt was not a mistake. That God, in the hatred of his brothers, was not rendered irrelevant, wasn't standing back wondering what's going to happen next. Okay, he was in control of that set of circumstances and certainly could have stopped what the brothers were planning. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul is wonderfully and abundantly blessed by God with incredible God-given capacities for service in the work of building up the church to keep him from becoming conceited. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7 says... Because of the surpassing great revelations, there was given to Paul a thorn in the flesh. And here's the key in this. There was given to Paul a thorn in the flesh. Who gave that thorn in the flesh? It is clear in the text. God gave the thorn in the flesh. It was a providential limiter or governor in Paul's life to produce a level or degree of humility that would enable him to more effectively serve God. God allowed that struggle to come into his life because God is the one who is working in all things. And then he says, it was a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And in my notes, I typed in all things. The things that we would reject the struggles that we don't think should be part of our life, God wants to use in our life. Do you see? The all things for Paul is weakness in his life. And what is his conclusion? Here's what he says. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness. Why? Because I know where that weakness came from. It was the sovereign, providential purpose of God to keep me from becoming proud. Thank you, Lord. That's what Paul's saying. I look at my life, I know why God gave me limited skills in almost every area of my life. Okay? You want to, the word that describes me is average. Okay? I am well aware. That is the word that describes me. And everything I've attempted in my life, always average. Always a better ping pong player. Right, Ryan? Can't even win a game from him. Okay? Average. Why? Because God in his providence is seeking to protect us. And then there are times I see highly gifted people. And I know why God gifted them. They have an, an incredible, uncanny degree of humility. And God can bless them with higher degrees of wealth. With certain gifts and capacities. And they exercise those gifts with such deep humility. And are such a blessing. 
God's given me the gift of forgetfulness to keep me humble all the time, all the time. Paul looks at that all things and he says, God, in your wisdom, you gave me this thorn in the flesh and you kept me humble and made me useful in your kingdom. Thank you. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. I want to stretch you a little bit on this idea of God being in control of all things ahead of time. He says, remember the former things, those from long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God. There is none like me. Okay, that is strong. Either that is pure arrogance or he is who he says he is. You only have two choices here. I make known the end from the beginning. He knows how the Eagles are going to do in their game today. If they're playing today. Are they playing today, Ken? All right. He knows the score. Okay? He says, I declare the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do what I please. And then then he gives two illustrations. He says, and look, I want you to listen to this. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. How sovereign is that? From the east I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land a man to fulfill my purposes. Then I flip it into the gospels and what do I find Jesus saying? Not one sparrow falls to the ground without the father knowing. He is exhaustively sovereign. There is not one part of your life that does not come under the providential, overriding, and overruling control of your God, if you know him personally. His control is comprehensive. It includes the means and the outcome. And here's the promise that emerges from this idea that God works for our good through all things. Here's the promise. Nothing will touch our lives that is not under the control and direction of our loving Heavenly Father. Nothing. Nothing. Even the things that I can't explain and cannot understand. Let that truth embrace your heart. Nothing can come into your life that God does not control. My response to that is this. God, I can trust you in all things even though I do not understand all things. As a pastor, I am regularly asked questions that I'm going to have to say over and over. I can't answer that question. I don't have the answer to that question. Here's my answer. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own inadequate understanding. Because here's what happens. And the things that we can't explain or that we don't understand, if we don't understand or can't explain a good purpose for the difficulty in our life, here's what we think and assume. There can be no good purpose unless I understand it. Okay, There can't be a good purpose in this pain, in this problem, unless I understand that purpose. You know what that is? Tim Keller puts it this way. He says that is the height of arrogance. To say that God must explain to me why he is doing what he is doing in my life. Folks, understand this. If God is your creator, he does not owe you an explanation. He may give you one. He'll give you one like this. I am working all of these things together for the glory of my name and for the good of my children. That's clear here. But it is arrogance for us to say that since I don't understand the purpose for this problem or why this episode or event occurred, there can't be a good purpose for it. 
I think we need to challenge that thinking. The last thought I want us to look at this morning is this, and it answers the question, for whom does God work in this beneficial way? Okay, for whom does God work all things together for good? And this text answers that question very simply. It says God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Now, let me just give you the last principle thought. God has planned and purposed in eternity past to do good for all of his children. Okay, that's the implication here. It is for the good of those who love him. And if you go back earlier in chapter 8, you're going to find that those who love him have the indwelling and compelling witness and testimony of the Spirit that causes them to fight against sin and to relate to their heavenly Father. Two indications in this text of a certainty of conversion. The Spirit of God will be internally testifying to your daughtership and sonship. The Spirit of God will be prompting you to fight against sin. And in that fighting... And in that seeking, you will be loving God because you're loving things to please Him. For those that love Him, they are, in this text, the objects of His affection and they are those who have been called by Him. Okay, so who is this promise to? God is working all things together for good. For who? For those who love him because he first loved them. This is what John will later say. We love him because he previously loved us. Our love then is always what? It is always a response to what? The sovereign electing grace of God in the heart of sinners. That changes our mind about our sin and calls us into a personal relationship with God. Those who have been called by God, one one definition I thought was very powerful that John Stott gave, he said this, a person who has been called by God is a person whose interests and affections have been affected by God. Did you understand that? It is a person whose affections and interests have been affected and drawn Godward. Here's what Jesus said. You did not choose me, I chose you. No one comes after me unless the Father what? draws him okay so if you've experienced that if you this morning are experiencing that draw of god to come to faith in christ don't resist him respond and if in the past you have experienced that and have been drawn into a love relationship with god if you have been called by god if your interest and affections have been turned godward that is not emerging from your flesh rest of chapter eight it's emerging from the work of the spirit in your heart which is the evidence of your conversion and the down payment and guarantee of your future and complete, full salvation. It is for those that God is working everything together for good. If you are in Christ, your salvation is not a surprise to God. The day you trusted Christ, He didn't stand back and said, who would have ever thought? It's not what happened. Exhibit the Apostle Paul. And I simply read for you these passages of Scripture. Acts twenty two ten through 14. Paul is recounting the experience of Acts chapter 9 when he was a raging, threat-breathing persecutor of the church of Christ. 
And while he was on the road to Damascus, most of us are familiar with the story. The light from heaven shone, which I believe is a picture of the Shekinah glory of God, was unleashed on the Apostle Paul. He was struck to the ground by the brightness of that light, very similar to what happens to Moses in the Old Testament, to the priests that operate in the tabernacle, the priest in the temple, Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6. Paul has that experience. A sovereign encounter with the sovereign God. <laughs> Paul says this after he struck to the ground. What shall I do, Lord? I want to tell you something, folks. I don't think God came on that day and poured out his Shekinah glory on the Apostle Paul and then stood back saying, I wonder how Paul will respond to this. He confronted Paul and chose Paul to work in his kingdom. Paul's response was no surprise to a sovereign God. Here's what the Lord says. Get up, go to Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been, I want you to listen to these words, assigned to do all things. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because of the brilliance of the light, it had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by the Jews who were living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very moment, I was able to see. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. Paul, that encounter that you had on the road to Damascus was a sovereign appointment from God. Paul later, in his last letter, 2 Timothy chapter 1, writes these words. He says, so do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. Or be ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Who saved us and called us. Notice, all things. To be a holy, or called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done. But because of his own purpose and grace. Okay, so Paul's salvation in his understanding clearly was a result of God's purpose and God's grace. This grace was given us in Christ when? Before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. You know how Paul understands his calling? It was the work of God. 1 Timothy 1, 12-14. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength. He considered me faithful, appointing me to this service in eternity past. Even though I once was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy. I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me even more abundantly. Now folks, I don't see how we can read these passages of Scripture and not realize that our standing in God is a result of Him working in our lives in all things. That He, if you know Christ, He graciously worked in your heart in His phenomenal and unbelievable kindness and drew you in to a personal relationship with His Son. And that work was part of the all things that are then explained in verses 29 through 30 of the text that we will look at next week.
I want to make an observation for you. I've been around the church a long time. I came to Christ. My first, first time I professed faith in Christ, I was six years old. Grew up in the church. Here's something I've noticed. Most people believe, uh, if they're of marrying age and they're committed to following Christ, they believe that God has a person that he wants them to meet. They call it like their destiny, okay? Because that word just kind of works in our day. I think it's part of God's sovereign plan. Here's what troubles me. And they think that the purchase of the house that they're going to buy. I want to buy the house that God wants me to buy. I want to make sure I buy the car that God wants me to buy. And yet when it comes to our salvation, we want to take credit for the choice we made. I find that fundamentally troubling. Paul's saying, God is working all things together, including drawing you to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And what that will produce in your life is an incredible degree of humility and gratitude and trust. If he has taken care of my eternal destiny, the supreme ultimate thing, then can I trust him with my daily experiences? Be confident as a Christian in everything that you do because God has a saving purpose and is working everything in accordance with his will and plan. As we close this morning, can I give you these three challenges? If you've never trusted in Christ alone, you face a choice today that you must make. Will you trust in his call, in his cross work? Will you respond to his offer of salvation by grace through faith alone and be restored and redeemed by the grace of God this morning? The fact that God has a sovereign plan doesn't mean that you don't need to respond. In fact, I think the Bible is very clear. If God is working in your heart, you need to repent and to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you are in Christ, I just think this text makes you a wonderful promise. You are secure in the hand of a sovereign God who loved you and gave himself to make you his own. I give you this challenge also. Would you memorize this passage of scripture? Would you memorize Romans 8, 28 through 30? Put it on a card. Put it on your dinner table. Teach it to your kids. John Stott had a wonderful quote. He said, this text has been likened to a pillow on which to rest our weary heads. In the midst of your difficult circumstances that will be part of this year, we can be assured. Would you rest your head on this pillow? On this truth? Let the truth that God works in all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And if you know him, you have been called to know him. And if you know him, he is working everything in your life together for good. Will you trust him to bring the right job, to bring the right individual into your life to marry? Will you trust him with your education? Will you trust him with your struggles, with your financial concerns? Will you trust him? The one who works all things. Trust the one who controls all things to do good in all things. And when you do, Isaiah 26.3 gives you a wonderful promise. You will keep in perfect peace the one whose heart is fixed on you because he trusts in you. Folks, the opposite of that is this. A God-belittling panic that doesn't acknowledge the sovereignty of God in all things. In all things, God works together for the good of those who love him.
to those who are called according to his purpose. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. 